You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his students. After I'd been sitting about a year or so, pretty seriously, I was listening to this talk that Norman Fisher gave. This must have been about, I don't know, 1988, 1989, something like that. And he's got this amazingly calm presence and he carefully crafts his Dharma talks just so beautifully done. Uh, Anyway, I had a lot of respect for him as a as a young practitioner and new new practitioner. <coughs> and I remember him saying that the most successful students of contemplative practice are the ones that take a little bit at a time. As opposed to people who get hyper-enthused and give themselves over totally it's just a little bit at a time and that was kind of comforting to me because I was of the mindset that you either dive in totally or forget it So I took his advice and I just did a little bit at a time. And I found that to be so helpful. And then about uh, two or three years later, after I'd been taking in a little bit at a time, I'd you know, done a few one-day sittings and then um, I had, think I had done a session by that point. Norman was sitting there, and then Blanche Hartman, who was another of the senior priests, one of Suzuki Roshi's students, they were sitting at lunch, and I happened to be recognizing, you know, as I'm in line, I'm getting this wonderful organic rice and this uh, salad and so forth and soup, and man, there's a spot at their table. I thought, oh man, this is going to be great. I'm just going to, I'm going to just get in there and let the Dharma rain flow and see what happens. And um, the two of them were just sitting there silently eating. And it wasn't a silent lunch, but they weren't talking. And so I had this wrestling match, you know. Uh, I want to talk to these guys, but I don't want to, you know, upset their silence. And they're, you know, these beautiful brown robes and everything and they're way up in the hierarchy and so I'm kind of intimidated but at the same time um, I kind of wanted to know what they thought of things some of the things that I had been working on you know I'd been taking it just a little bit at a time and there's some stuff that just kept coming up and um, one of them was this rather silly question what's the what is the meaning of Zen you know, one of the light questions. And so I 
saw that they were pretty much finished with their meals and they were both just kind of sitting next to each other quietly and I rather awkwardly said, all right, so you guys, what is the meaning of Zen? And right as I said it, it was like one of those moments I wish I could have like pulled it back into my face. It's like, why did I say it like that? Oh my God, I must have just, this is so, st I'm so stupid. Oh. And they both kind of looked at me and smiled, like, you know, half-cocked smile, you know, kind of like, <laughs> and uh, Norman very kindly said, well, I don't, I don't know how Blanche would react to that question, but I think it's about questioning. It's like, that was it. It's about questioning. And then Blanche uh, said, yeah, that's good. That's about it. And then they picked up their plates and went, <laughs> went to the, you know, dropped them off in the dish room. Questioning. And then uh, the teacher of, of, of Blanche, Suzuki Roshi, his, his uh, comment was that it's not always so. Things are not always so. And that's it. Now, as simple as this may sound, and as much as this may have appeared to be a non-answer, it absolutely floored me. Because I was busy trying to figure out what was always so. What is Zen about? Damn it. What is enlightenment? You know, am I here just sitting on this cushion, you know, in this freezing Zendo for no good reason, or is it just so I can question things? It's, you know, and, and then as it started to kind of sink in, I recognized that it was in the knowing that the egoic tendency shows up the toxin that kills the impulse to awaken is in that desperate need to know. That it's in the not knowing. And it's not about understanding. It's about recognizing that there's nothing under you to stand on. Already knowing what is true is just about the greatest seduction. That we know, ah, yes, this is true and this is false. So say I. This, in its essence, is kind of a, a reification of our egoic tendency to identify with a particular position as opposed to allowing for multiple positions to reveal themselves. Multiple valid claims to truth all at once. Being open for that allows for us to meet our world differently. So this already knowing what is true is really just egoic clinging.
it's egoic protection, so to speak, from the unknowable. It's uh, an insulator from that which is beyond the mind. When that which is beyond the mind is exactly what allows us to represent physically the blessing of silence, of stillness, of spirit, of the now, of grace, of ease, of tenderness, compassion, wisdom, all at once in one gesture. And if you think about it, exposure to this unknowable, true, authentic exposure to that which is unknowable means death to ego. Or at least that's what it perceives. So there's no way it's going to let us go there. There's no way that our separate self-sense is going to allow us to merge with all things willingly. The best way we can support that type of move is, of course, to force stillness into our situation, which is exactly what we do as we sit. Now, I know that may sound kind of militaristic, and that's not the point, it, but... Uh, Left to its own devices, the ego will manage the whole experience, as you guys know. Taken out of its habitual comfort zone, just like we sometimes say putting a snake inside of a bamboo tube, the snake is still a snake, but it cannot behave like it normally behaves. Yet it recognizes that its snakiness is still there. Its ability to behave like a snake is not its habitual tendencies are immediately called into question because it's pinned. And sitting still, even though we might want to just rail and scream or we might want to tell the neighbors to shut up or tell the guy outside who's revving his engine on his 4x4 to just please be quiet, you know, whatever it happens, it's always something. It's always, always, always something. What we try to do is allow all of this to happen with an unfettered mind, one that doesn't cling to any other position, one that doesn't know what should be, but rather one that non-judgmentally accepts what is, just like a mirror accepts whatever is in front of it without any clinging or any judgment. Already knowing truth is a fortification. Already knowing truth is a fortification against invulnerability. I guess I should say against vulnerability. Excuse me. A fortification against vulnerability. When in fact vulnerability is the offering. When we feel vulnerable, what we are actually feeling is an invitation from 
that which is unknowable to join it. It's when the unknowable is starting to recognize itself in us, we can physically perceive that as vulnerability. Now, without diving into, the in, diving into the vulnerability, we can actually just accept that it is there. And in that acceptance, we create an even more fertile ground for the blossoms of awakening to arise, or from which the blossoms of awakening can arise. Already knowing truth is another way of saying conceit, and conceit will always keep us from recognizing that there is no, ultimately, no boundary between self and other. It's a disease that, like I said, kills the radical truth of the unknown, of the mystery. It keeps the mystery from showing up. And along these lines, it's really f quite fair to say that uh, enlightened awareness or the manifestation of an authentic awakening is not knowing. It doesn't mean that we have no idea and don't care and we just kind of push everything away, but it's that we question. It's that we recognize that things are not always so. Even if they have always turned right every single time we've ever come into this situation, we've always seen that the circumstance always goes this way, and it goes this way, and it goes this way, and we expect that it will always go that way until, uh-oh, and then somehow it's wrong. Instead of recognizing our relationship with that continued turn. Recognizing our expectation. Recognizing our attachment to an outcome. So it's really critical that we recognize that not knowing is not the absence of any mental recognition. That's not what not knowing is. It's not the total denial of conviction or of understanding. It's just having a different relationship to it. And this way we, uh, as I've said before, we approach our moments without the typical baggage. In fact, in letting that baggage go, we approach other people, other situations, our day-to-day -day simplicities with divine love, an expanse, an expansive heart, and freedom that spontaneously arises in others that we meet, even if only briefly. And that's from not knowing. So, already knowing what is true, absolutely, positively, 
sure of anything, if we are absolutely, positively, totally convinced, we should watch that very carefully. Because more or less, that's an attachment. The same applies for the other direction. Absolutely, 100% positively knowing something as false is the same exact egoic move. Already knowing what is false also is egoic's protection from the unknowable. And when we bury or push away what we know to be false, we are in essence just setting up denial. And we can look at denial as the fear, which is the disease that kills the radical truth of the unknown for people. I mean, we're just talking about literally two different directions. And this is this two-dimensionality, this this way or this way, is the way ego moves, or this way and this way. But it's just typically, it's plainer, you know? So, just as enlightened consciousness is not always knowing truth, it is also not always knowing what is false. Or to twist our brains a little bit, it's not knowing, and it's also not not knowing. It's right in between. It is the middle way. It is the middle path. And we explore this hopefully, at every single second, every juncture of our life, there's a chance for us to wonder. There's a chance for us to question. There's a chance for us to recognize that things are not always so. So how do we manifest this middle path? How do we manifest this middle way? How do we manifest, how do we show the world this awareness? Well, first of all, we concentrate on not showing it. We try not to attach to it. We try to let it show itself through us by getting out of its way. So one way we might be able to look at enlightenment, it's the realization of the flawless and perfected oneness of all things that came from this Big Bang. And in that recognition of this total connection to all of this, there's a spontaneous push or impulse to share that all at once. So we simultaneously, as I've mentioned, become the complete and continuing Big Bang, or the completion and the continuance of the birth of the universe. Just as we drive our car, we become emptiness and form all at once. We manifest wisdom and compassion all at once. We disidentify with both time 
and mind, and yet we engage consciously in the unfolding of our own lives as well as the lives of others. And the whole time, we can remind ourselves that this entire practice is about questioning. This entire practice, we see it reveal itself as everything is not always so. How are you? Fine, Michael. Good. Thank you. Thank sure. you so much. You're very welcome. Um, I think I've told you before, I have to bring things down to the practical level to see if I got it a little bit. And um, a few days back, there was a piece of news about the fact that uh, 95 Methodist ministers out of the 164 that this country has, had written a letter of apology, a public letter of apology, for not having come out before against the way that the war in Iraq had taken place. Mm -hmm. um, and President Bush goes to that church, to the Methodist church in Austin, Texas. And then that's one example. And then the other example that I, was, I wanted to share was the fact that that same week I saw in the news that Fox Television, Fox TV, was going to have one of the Kennedy guys talk about global worm, warming. What, why am I talking about this? Well, the reason is that when you talk about change and that everything is not just so, and at least I have a lot of difficulty with change because it seems to me sometimes I want things to definitely stay and I, sometimes I want things to immediately change. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, gets me in trouble. It makes me very unhappy. But with those two pieces of news, I thought, I have been so upset. I've actually been in so much pain because of some of the things that President Bush has done during his tenure. And I have, all, I, I have felt that he was absolutely wrong and that things were going to go, no, we're going to get worse. And I, this knowing that, no, things were going wrong, because I felt that I knew things were going wrong, obviously caused a lot of anguish. Then I, and it's fascinating because if obviously this was before your lecture. Then I got these two pieces of news and I thought, there you are. Um, this piece of news that these ministers in this church, the Methodist church, are coming out and saying something that really uh, changes the whole situation. What does that tell me? That if I could just sit without the desperation for things to change or not change, maybe I could end up smiling like the Buddha. Because I would not be, you know, rattled. 
just I will be accepting that everything changes. Mm-hmm. Now, again, in trying to learn all of this, I keep on saying, this is easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then with the news of the fact that Fox Television, who has a reputation, I, I, I don't see Fox Television, but I understand is very... Um, re- very uh, conservative and he doesn't have a balanced uh, program. And then comes Mr. Kennedy and he's going to be given an hour to talk about that. So if you could just again repeat how, where is the middle way? The middle way is the one that I think is still pretty elusive for me. Because if it weren't, I would just truly be much happier and I will be able to cope with things better. Just maybe to sit and wait knowing that my knowing is really just an illusion because change is, is really what is real. And that if I hadn't been so furious at Mr. Bush or thinking that how could he go to that church or is he ever going to change, and all of a sudden there is a message that maybe somebody is sending him a message to go a different way. The middle way. The middle way is not confined to your personal sense of what is right or confined to your personal sense of what is not right. The middle way is not touched by either of those two personal accounts or senses of what is. The middle way can see both and question them. And in that questioning, there unfolds a smile like the Buddha's. Some say it's an infinite smile. (laughs) <laughs> but your your commentary is quite quite right. It doesn't mean also that if you sense that something goes against what you sense to be true, that you shouldn't act. Of course, you should act. But if you're acting from a place that is contracted and is contracted around your personal sense of truth mm-hmm. as opposed to being open in your response then you're merely fighting unconsciousness with unconsciousness or trying to fight darkness with darkness. No light comes from that. The only thing that can end darkness is light. Mm. And light comes from the middle way. Mm. The middle way actually is light, but don't tell anybody. I won't. Okay. That'll be our secret along with the thousands of our friends. Thank you, Michael. You said something about questioning. That's what Zen is. But then you also said something about not knowing. And I might and about how you know the whole certitude thing, like if you have to know or you know but isn't questioning to find out something? 
Yeah, but if we can put ourselves in this seat of questioning and rest there, what we can uncover in ourselves and in others and in experience in general or circumstance in general is the ultimate expanse of the mystery, the not knowing. That, in other words, when we relax in our not knowing, we begin to walk the middle path. It's in the absolute certitude that we can absolutely guarantee war will happen, that suffering will happen. Suffering will ensue from absolute certitude. I think I'm... uh, I think that's a paraphrase of Oliver Wendell Holmes, actually. After the Civil War, he mentioned something like that. Um, But it's... In other words, when, when we talk about questioning, Mark, or we talk about not always so, it's not that we're looking for an answer. It's that we're looking for a question. It's in the question that all things start to unfold. There's release in a question. There's contraction in a, in a knowing and so if you think about it, this whole process that we're engaged in right now is folly, isn't it? You know, we ask questions and then, you know, a little slappy McBaldy up here is answering questions, right? <laughs> and somehow that's going to lead us <laughs> closer. Yeah, thanks, Zen boy. You know, well, it's, it's, that's only partially true because there is nothing I can tell you that you don't already know in your deepest heart of hearts. There's nothing I can teach you. In fact, what I am teaching is nothing. But that is a really hard sell. You don't, <laughs> you don't get people showing up the minute you say, so what are you going to teach me? Nothing. Yeah. We're going to talk about emptiness. You know? I don't know if that helped at all. <laughs> It's the not knowing. It's the wonder. It's the mystery. Just like what you felt like when you first realized, my God, I'm in love with this woman named Carol. There's, it's a mystery. How did that happen? I don't know. It's when you held your, 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 your child for the first time. You know, It's a mystery. It just it breaks us wide open. You know, it's wonder. You know, and relaxing in that mystery, there's nothing to do except smile or sing, maybe. I'm still not. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I I can appreciate not knowing and and being and not having to know and sort of trying to not know, because then you're maybe thinking too much. But I still don't know how questioning is different than needing to know. How question? Say that one more time. How questioning, how questioning is, is different than needing to know. Needing to know is about acquiring something. Questioning has nothing to do with needing to know. Needing to know is the next step that ego will take from questioning. So questioning is 
non-egoic. Needing to know is what happens after that non-egoic place, after ego jumps into the mix, so to speak. Okay? So it's as if you could say, there's, there's not knowing, wonder, mystery, questioning, a full recognition that things are not always so, and then, I want to know. And that's where ego jumps in. And so being able to rest in the just, that's, that's the freedom. That's taking the backward step. So is questioning almost more of an attitude and not at getting prepared to ask a question? Yeah. Yeah, if you're if you're prepared to if if you're asking asking a question so that you can get an answer, it's egoic. But you know what? Unfortunately, the pedagogy of all teaching involves that. We use we use the the curiosity, the fire, the desire, the the, the certitude actually of ego to actually tease out this this teaching. <laughs>